David, welcome to the show. Hi, Ronnie. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. So to get started, could you give the audience a little bit of background on what your research has focused on throughout the years? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, I do a number of things. I um, study uh, math development and cognition. Not too much on sex differences there, but a, a little bit related to algebra and, and a few other things. Um, I also have written several books on sex differences and studied um, uh, sex differences in, in mice and rats. Uh, a little bit have collaborated on that as well as um, human cognitive sex differences. Wonderful. So you published a paper in 2018 that mm. caused quite a buzz called the gender equality paradox. Can right. you tell us what you found there? Right. So um, the gender equality paradox is gen generally um, the observation that as countries become more um, liberal, um, gender equal in terms of women's participation in education, labor, uh, the labor market, politics, and so forth, as all of these things change, um, sex differences in a number of areas actually become larger, um, not smaller. Uh, the prediction way back in the 80s was that as these things continue to change, that psychological, behavioral, cognitive sex differences uh, would begin to shrink and eventually um, would disappear. And um, that not only has not happened, um, the opposite has happened. So in, in 2018, my colleague and I, um, Hisbert Stoet, uh, looked at, uh, we had uh, collaborated on a few things, looking at large data sets, large international um, achievement data sets and sex differences and a variety of things there. Um, so we looked at those data sets and we also looked at um, college graduates and what fields men and women were graduating in. And um, what we found was that um, there are fewer women graduating in inorganic science, technology, math fields, and so forth. So physics, computer science, engineering, those types of things that don't involve dealing with living things. Um, that's not a surprise. We've, we've known that for a long time. Um, but what was a bit of a surprise was that the magnitude of the sex difference got larger as um, societies became more gender equal. So it's the exact opposite of the earlier decades old predictions that these differences were going to disappear. Um, and, and for us, for STEM uh, interests, uh, it gets larger. We, we published a follow-up study on that recent, recently looking at about 500,000 or so adolescents' occupational preferences. And you find the standard sex differences there, and many of these become larger in gender-equal countries. Amazing. So this idea that as the society becomes more gender equal and accepting of, you know, different gender roles for everyone. We yeah. actually see men and women going into fields that are more uh, sex specific, so to speak. How do you explain this? Why is it? Well, I, we, we had a fairly straightforward explanation of it. Um, 
So you see more women in engineering, computer science, in a place like Saudi Arabia than, or Bahrain, and than in um, Sweden, despite the um, greater equality in Sweden than, than these other places. Um, and one at one end, I think women are more likely to go into these fields because it gives them a higher degree of economic um, independence and security than going into other fields. In a place like Sweden, where there is a lot of a lot more opportunities for women and there are more safety nets and so forth there, um, you can kind of go more with your interests than with economic necessities. And, and we, we, we found some evidence that, that that's at least a contributing factor. So yeah, I think as places become more liberal <clears throat> and wealthy and so forth, people have more options and individual preferences are uh, more likely to be expressed. I really find this fascinating. And I have to tell you a personal story about this paper. Mm -hmm. I uh, came across it, you know, five years ago uh, when Jordan Peterson mentioned it um, in one of his online lectures. And I was debating, you know, what to do with my life. I had uh, done a year of economics and business uh, in undergrad and uh, was thoroughly unsatisfied. Um, and I had been, uh, you know, really good at math growing up. I was in all the honors math classes, mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't doing it for me. And one of the things that he said, you know, kind of uh, um, paraphrasing your work, was that the fact that even though that there are women who are very skilled at math and science, they're usually also um, as skilled or even more so at verbal reasoning. Uh, unlike men who are very good at math, who usually aren't as good at verbal reasoning, and then they'll tend to go into number-oriented fields and engineering and the like. And that really hit home for me and kind of led me on a path to go into the humanities and into psychology. So it was really helpful. Um, so I... Yeah, so I just wanted to share that because I know you've uh, you've gotten a lot of backlash uh, about it, and I want I wanted you to know that it was helpful for me, anyways. All right, um, that's, yeah, that that's one of the other things that we found was the individual yeah. strength. So, what's your best subject? And people tend to go, you know, if they're better at math than verbal sorts of things, they tend to go into more techie fields, or if they're better in verbal than, than math, even if math is very high, they tend to go into more humanities, social sciences sort of thing. And, and, and those gaps get bigger with gender equality as well. Right. What, how, how do you explain that? Why does gender equality increase those gaps in the intra-individual strengths? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's gender equality per se. I, I, I think it's more liberal um, educational policy, so forth. So you can, you know, if you're into literature and stuff, you can blow off, at least in the U.S., you can blow off math after 10th grade and just take more literature sorts of things or, or vice versa. So, so there's, there's more choice. Interesting. Have you explored at all whether, you know, less gender equal societies are also more masculine in their orientation and kind of have to bring out the masculine in women as well? 
Have you explored that at all? Yeah, we, we we haven't looked at that. I'm not sure how what the best way to look at that would be. Maybe some gender roles, measures, or so forth. Right. But we, we haven't looked at that per uh, per se. I understand. Interesting, interesting uh, a path to look at. Uh, why is it? Do you think that? you know, there's such an insistence on gender stereotypes and stereotype threat mm-hmm. being the reason for these differences between men and women. How how do you explain that? Well, there are a lot of people who want to believe that um, a lot of things in the world are easily controllable, socially influenced, and therefore changeable in ways that would be typically better for them. And and so I think there's all these fallback arguments. You find these differences, they're getting bigger, like with the gender equality paradox. And now there's arguments that it it's still stereotyping and other sorts of biases, but it's really, really subtle. You know, so subtle it it's hard to measure. Um so right. I, I I think there there's a sense of controllability and there's a lot of activists who really don't want men and women and boys and girls to be different. And therefore any differences that are, are found, they attribute to factors they think that they can change, that they can argue away. Right. Right. I think it's uh, I call it playing God, this idea that we can uh, completely change everything and everything is socially constructed. And in that case, well, we can, uh, you know, design a world uh, as we see fit. Right. Yeah. Then we'd all be kings and queens, right? <laughs> In this perfect world. Yep. So about these differences, mm-hmm. what specific differences show up again and again in terms of cognitive abilities between mm-hmm. boys and girls? Yeah. So historically, psychologists have focused on um, uh, things like language related things, reading, math and spatial abilities. Um the math stuff I, I I can get to, but obviously that's a, a cultural invention and there's an instructional component and all of that. So it's not a straightforward sort of thing. Um, basically, women generally do better on areas uh, called folk psychology that involve dealing with individuals. So uh, reading facial expressions, um, picking up subtle changes in body posture, vocal intonation, uh, language, of course, uh, making inferences about the thoughts and feelings of others, all of the skills that are important for developing and maintaining individual relationships. And also um, for being bitchy, for being aggressive (laughs) or toward other women, subtly manipulating um, relationships and so forth, kind of a mean girl's type of thing. So I think whatever it takes to do well on that, girls are better on and and women are are better on. Um, Boys and and men tend to be better in areas uh, called folk physics. This is not academic physics. This is kind of your kind of uh, universal skills associated with visual spatial abilities, the ability to navigate, uh, track the trajectory of things that are moving in space, uh, mechanical reasoning, um, detecting things that are in, in, uh, that are camouflaged, so forth. So 
what can you give us the evolutionary reasons why men have been good at these particular things, you know, more the spatial reasoning and why women needed to develop better verbal reasoning. And in terms of just the timeline, how many years are we talking about in terms of civilization? Mm-hmm. Right. So um, usually when you get um, sex differences in visual spatial types of things, then you usually have males of those species having larger ranges. So they're moving around more, they're traveling more in those ranges, particularly if it's a novel range, having good visual spatial um, abilities is important. If we look at um, travel ranges and hunter-gatherer societies, uh, men's ranges are about three times larger than those of women. Uh, it's true even driving around cities, men kind of tr- kind of check things out more uh, than women right. do. So use of large scale space um, is is there. Um, a lot of the skills are also related to weapon use and defense against weapons. Men have upper body strength that um, they're they're built for use of blunt force weapons and. Um, their cognitive abilities, ability to track things, ability to dodge things coming at them and so forth um, is associated with, at least I argue in my book, um, use of projectile weapons and defense against projectile weapons. So lots and lots of male-male competition, lots of male-male fighting, high male death rates in um, traditional societies and in many epochs of, of, of history that we can now look at with population genetic data. So lots of fighting, use of large-scale space, use of projectile weapons, tracking objects in space. Uh, the mechanical reasoning thing, I think it is related to um, weapon construction, which is primarily a male thing uh, in traditional contexts. Right, this fascination with things as yep. well. Yep. And in terms of distance, I, uh, I spoke recently to Joyce Benenson and, you know, she documented that as, you know, as early as preschool, boys are, uh, you know, are exploring further on the playground uh, and they're going farther away from their parents uh, and their teachers than girls do. Uh, right. So, so quite amazing that we see this uh, throughout. So just to give people context, you know, I think People who think that most of these things are socially constructed gender roles, understanding the timeline here, I think, is really important. And just how long, how many years of evolution are we talking about in terms of these kinds of behaviors being built into us? Right. So um, if we a a good indicator for primates of um, intense male-male competition is a sex difference in physical size. And so men are bigger, they're taller than women, uh, uh, muscle, more lean muscle mass, and you know, so forth, all, all the differences we're familiar with. Um, we can look back on the fossil record and <clears throat> show that those sex differences have been around for more than 4 million years. <clears throat> so a, wow. a very, a very long time. The um, <clears throat> group level fighting that involves um travel, weapon use, and so forth. A lot of that probably came more recently, but still maybe with her gaster, probably more than 
uh, a million years or more. I mean, it's certainly been around for a long time. If we look at um, <clears throat> fossil injuries in uh, early humans and Neanderthals, we go back um, 100,000 years or so. <clears throat> we see lots of forearm injuries, which is a defensive against a um, you know blunt force sort of thing. Lots of head injuries, uh, primarily in males or almost exclusively in males. So this is this has been going on for a very, very long time. This goes way back. Way, that's, way. that's incredible. <laughs> that's incredible. I think uh, it makes a very strong point against this, uh, you know, social constructionist idea. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think it's, you know, doing quite a bit of damage these days. The fact that we have been, you know, trying to push girls ahead in school at the expense of boys, really. And we continue to tell boys that masculinity is toxic. We can see now that girls are ahead of boys in terms of academic achievement, mm -hmm. in terms of graduating from higher education. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think are the main reasons that we're seeing these differences in achievement throughout all of the age groups? Yeah. So it, we can go back. The first, first study I've ever found on sex difference and, and liking school was uh, published in like 1910 or so. Oh, wow. And girls back then liked school more than boys did. I mean, it, it just the school setting, sitting around, listening to a teacher, complying to these things, having you know, a lot of constraints on your behavior and so forth. It, it's easier for girls to, to deal with than, um, than boys. So the basic sex difference there has, has been around for a long time. Uh, the difference now is that um, with the opening up of occupations, educational opportunities and so forth that started in the 60s or so and then has kind of blossomed um, since then, it's just more fully expressed. And I think that a lot of the, um, you know, you mentioned the, the male, uh, is it uh, male to toxic masculinity yeah, there, yeah. you know, that, that sort of things um, make young men uh, and adolescent boys even less likely to want to go to school. I mean, it's, it's just a hostile environment, at least in some in, in some aspects of it, in some majors or with some professors or teachers or, or whatever. So they, 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 they don't like it that much anyway. And then you just kind of push them out. And, and, and I think actually that was the goal of a lot of the gender activists was, was to get rid of the guys and um, kind of take things over yeah. the women. Yeah. 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 I, I, uh, I couldn't agree more. Good luck. I think. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good luck with that. I mean, the last thing a society needs is millions of disaffected young males. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, on that topic, I think that in our modern world, we forget that we need masculinity. We forget that masculinity definitely has its virtues. Uh, we're so comfortable and uh, it's it's true that a lot of these gender activists are just kind of trying to drive that uh, masculine competitiveness and that ambition out of men. And I think it's a real shame because I think uh, it's 
this endless source of energy and innovation that a society should leverage uh, instead of trying to suppress, uh, to say the least. Right. So um, men men are generally more uh, competitive in terms of uh, status, cultural success, so forth, than women. That can express itself as, as violence, and it has obviously in some places and at some times. Um, but it can also express itself in terms of um, working hard to outcompete the other guy in terms of innovations. We wouldn't be able to do this without that competitive um, drive to do better than the the other individuals, and and so yeah, you're you're right. I mean, we need men to keep um, the world running, the cars running, and the trucks running, and to drive them, and all of that. Um, but also to put in the sixty hours a week to innovate and compete and outdo other guys to develop new technologies or new ways of understanding or whatever it might be. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that I've been hearing a lot, you know, in the research, there's plenty of evidence on sex differences. And yet there are quite a bit of figures who are speaking about the fact that there aren't any brain differences between boys and girls. Can you tell us some of the main brain differences, whether it's, you know, structural or whether it's brain activity and patterns uh, that you've seen and yeah. how how is uh how is this still up for debate well it, it it's well it's still up for debate because um there's a lot of very energetic activists who don't want to believe it and so they put a lot of energy into um uh misrepresenting the data and they spend all their time in the social sphere, social media, writing popular press books and those sorts of things to convince the general public and policymakers that it's not there. But underneath that, there there's a huge amount of work going on uh, in this area. Um, so, so generally, <clears throat> you can look at individual areas of the brain or say, let's take the face. Say you you can look at men and women's you know the the the, the uh, positioning of the eyes you know and there's a modest difference there, um, and if you look at each individual trait, the differences are modest. But when you look at a face and interact everybody with it, you are integrating all of that information together. So it is the entire pattern that is important. And when we look at the entire pattern of the face. <clears throat> you can discriminate men from women just by looking at the face and you can do it in less than a second, probably about 95% of the time uh, you'd be accurate in saying, well, that, that's a guy or a girl. Um, <clears throat> so you can do similar things with the brain. You can look at particular areas to see if certain areas are bigger or smaller, one sex or the other. And, and there are those areas. I think the, the more interesting work, though, is looking at the pattern of differences in gray matter and white matter, the connections between them. <clears throat> and there's now been been you know five or six or more studies that have looked at these overall patterns and the differences between men and women. And now we have data on boys and girls um, is almost the same as the differences in facial structure. It's about you can identify whether this brain belongs to a boy or a man or a girl or a woman, a woman, 
about 93 to 96% of the time. That's kind of the range of where, where these are in. So there are some guys with girl-typical brains and some girls with guy-typical brains, uh, but the vast majority are sex-typical so that you, you can distinguish them pretty easily. Um, <clears throat> that's ju ju just looking at the, just the anatomy of it. You can also look at uh, spontaneous brain activity. So the brain has um, seven or so major networks, and they stay integrated together by spontaneously firing together. So they're, they're all going off at the same time just to keep the connections fresh and operating. I see. So if, if you look at those patterns, you can identify um, a man or a woman about 86% of the time, 85 to 90% of the time. There's fewer of, of those studies now. So I think the accuracy will get higher and probably reach the anatomical stuff. Um, one of those studies looked at um, five-month-old fetuses. So you can get moms. I guess they convinced some moms to kind of lay in a uh, an MRI <laughs> machine for a little while, and they can look at the spontaneous brain activities of, um, you know, male fetus or female fetus by, you know, second trimester or so. And um, there are sex differences there as well. That's incredible. Spontaneous. That's incredible. In terms of these uh, differences, are they, you, you know, differences that you, you understand why we have those differences? Are they geared towards helping women do things that they evolved to do and men are the same? Um, yeah, I, I, I think so. So uh, women are better at these folk psych things, including language, um, fluency, a variety of aspects of uh, language production, comprehension, and so forth. And if we look at some of the key brain areas, involved in language for Mickey's area, for language sound processing, brokers for production and organization of what's being stated. Um, w women have more neurons in those areas than men. Wow. Um, wow. I definitely have more neurons there than my husband does. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, no doubt that, that that's true. It's actually a pretty, pretty big difference in those particular areas. Um, the visual spatial abilities are kind of in the parietal cortex um, there, and um, men have more surface area. They're controlling overall brain volume, so probably more neurons in those areas for men than women. Amazing. Amazing. So these differences also make intelligible sense of why we see them. You know, I have to share, I... I do try to read uh, differing opinions, you know, opposing views on these subjects in the spirit of uh, the scientific method and, uh, and, and just, you know, ma making sure that I'm not in my own loop of confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, a lot of these, you know, whether it's articles or papers or, you know, um, speeches that I'm hearing, they're not giving real data. It sounds very um, complainy. You know, there's not a lot of critical thinking happening there. And I'm just kind of comforted <laughs> when I'm hearing these people speak and how they write because they're not bringing real evidence. 
they're taking, you know, examples from, from, you know, research like yours and others and kind of picking it apart and making fun of it. And of course it's not true, right? but I never, I never hear an actual explanation for why. Um, so. Right. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's, uh, yeah. You, you said not having much critical thinking. So I, I would say no critical thinking skills Yeah. Uh, be, because their goal is to, uh, present a self-serving argument that there are in fact no differences. And whenever these differences come up, they've got to whack them down. And their problem is, is that, you know, underneath the public discourse, which they're, they're trying to um, control, um, is a lot of really good scientific research going on that they really can't control that. The only thing they can control is the public message. Which is why right. you know, they, most, most of these folks who do it don't do very good research on their own or don't do much, at least a lot of them from, from what, I've, what I've looked up. Um, and so they're, they have an agenda. Right, right. I think that this agenda is, um, it's very scary to me because I think that obviously, you know, we are a progressive society and we're evolving beyond traditional sex roles for sure. sure. Uh, but I think it can be done in a way that's healthy for everyone. And I think there is a place for men integrating their femininity and women integrating their masculinity. And that's happening. But I think it needs to happen in a conscious way, in a healthy way, without demonizing either side. And I don't think the end goal needs to be sameness uh, because... I, I, that's not healthy. It, it doesn't get us anywhere. And it's, it requires to, us to suppress something within us right. uh, instead of integrating and becoming, you know, more whole. Uh, so that's, that's my hope that at some point the gender debate will go in a much healthier direction. Um, yeah. In terms of hormone, what, yeah, what do you think about that? When you- well, well, we'll see. In, in, in the long run, nature always has the last last word on it. So debate can go on forever, even when the matter's settled. Amen. Amen. That, no, that's for sure. That's for sure. And we'll, we'll get into that as well, how mm -hmm. nature affects all of these things. Sure. So getting into hormones mm -hmm. and how, you know, I'm fascinated by how sex hormones, they affect our behaviors, our cognitive and physical abilities, our appearance. Mm -hmm. And also very much depending on at what point we're talking about throughout our development, whether uh, exposure prenatally to right. sex hormones or throughout adolescence, or are we supplementing with hormones and are we looking at, you know, current circulating hormones? So in terms of, you know, what androgens do and what estrogens do in general, and in terms of the, the time points that they're most um, important in bringing about these sex-specific traits, what have you found? Right. Yeah. So, so there's three three time points where they're important: uh, prenatal development, and then um, in the first six months or so of life, there's a big spike. Uh, boys have a spike in testosterone, and girls have some fluctuation in, in uh, exposure to estrogens, and then of course puberty. So we have, we have prenatal early postnatal and pubertal effects. And then of course we have circulating uh, effects. 
the um, prenatal effects, I, I think, are pretty clear. Um, the 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 physical sex differences are early in development, and then we begin to see um, uh, brain development in the second trimester kicking in, and we're probably seeing some 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 differences there. And some of the behavioral differences probably are due to later hormonal exposure, although some could, could, could be earlier. But in any case, there, there's evidence that um, things like sexual orientation are influenced by um, levels of um, prenatal exposure to, to various hormones. Um, uh, play behavior is influenced by prenatal and probably a little bit early postnatal exposure to hormones. Some of the sex differences we've uh, talked about, the, the verbal and visual spatial sorts of things seem to be influenced by the, the prenatal uh, hormones as well. So there, there's uh, a lot going on prenatally and a lot of the sex differences that we see um, later in life, at least some of the basic biases toward you know, being interested in large-scale space versus really focusing on faces um, are influenced by, by prenatal exposure to hormones as well as probably postnatal. We don't know as much about the correlates of the postnatal surges, you know, in the first six months or so, but we're now getting evidence that, that these two are influencing um, things like early sex differences in play behavior, interests, and even later, later interests like occupational interests. Interesting. So in terms of prenatal exposure to sex hormones, mm -hmm. for instance, we, we have a baby girl who was exposed to more testosterone than usual. Mm -hmm. We're going to see more rough and tumble play, for instance, in her. Yeah. So girls who, for whatever reason, have a little bit more exposure to uh, androgens or ma male hormones prenatally, their play behaviors tend to be kind of in between uh, sex-typical boy and sex-typical girl. So they're not completely boy-like and they're right. not completely girl-like like their sisters, but yeah. They're we, tomboys. We, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're tomboys. Tomboys, we'd see more rough and tumble play, more interested, more interest in playing with cars than with dolls, and more interest in sports and those types of things. Interesting, interesting. What kind of factors affect how much sex hormones you're uh, exposed to prenatally? Yeah, so probably uh, there's a variety of factors that, that can influence it. The first few months, actually pl placental hormones kind of trigger, help um, trigger the testes and ovaries and so forth in the first few months. And then internally, it kicks in. Uh, the exposure, probably, probably there there's some heritable components to it as to, as to how much you're getting exposed to. Um, if mom is exposed to certain chemicals or or hormone-like substances uh, prenatally, this can affect the fetus as well. Um, interesting. Interesting. You know, on this uh, topic of hormones, I, I find it really surprising that people, you know, look at this kind of research and 
for me, it comforts me because I think the fact that these sex hormones are at the root of the masculine and the feminine traits that we know and can explain also the variability within the sexes. You know, as you said, a, a girl that's exposed to more androgens prenatally, she's going to have a little bit more of a tomboy kind of presentation and vice versa for a boy maybe who has less exposure to testosterone or estrogen. Mm -hmm. It varies. But the idea that, you know, masculinity and femininity can also vary within an individual. And even if we're talking about male typical patterns and female typical patterns, nobody's saying that all males are one way and all females are this way, right? Right. Yeah. I, I, I think that's part of the problem. When people think about things, they think about groups or categories, which makes it easier to kind of think about things. When I think about it, I think about it in terms of distributions within these categories and how much they overlap or don't overlap. So there is plenty of room for average differences and there's plenty of room for variation within each sex. And in fact, you couldn't get an evolutionary change in anything without variation. And, you know, the sexual reproduction and, and the biological system is designed to create variation across people and even within people for, for different traits. Right, right. I really hope, you know, that this kind of understanding um, you know, hits people at some point that we're not saying that men are always this way and women are always that way. But if we aren't able to agree about what masculinity means and what femininity means, mm -hmm. these are archetypes. You know, mm -hmm. I'm a, a, you know, I'm a very a big fan of Jung and his thinking. And a lot of his ideas are, you know, uh, they sit very well with evolutionary psychology. Sure. Uh, because, you know, these archetypes are built in through the millions of years that humans have been on Earth. They're, they're built in features of the human psyche, uh, mm -hmm. so to speak. So the fact that we're trying to deconstruct these really basic concepts of what masculinity is and what femininity is, I think isn't helpful. We can question the sex roles, the traditional sex roles, but still we need to be able to have a conversation. Yeah. So, so, so masculinity is really about striving for social respect, social status, and some level of control over socially, culturally important resources. That's what guys want. Sometimes they can do it aggressively, but they can be socialized and steered into areas where they can get that respect, status, esteem, wealth or whatever, whatever is important in that by working on themselves, developing skills, competencies, and so forth that allow, will allow them, you know, like becoming educated or becoming a good hunter or warrior, whatever it is, uh, that will give them a pathway within that particular cultural um, context. And so understanding masculinity is toxic is, is just nonsense. And, and is, is, as you said, um, very hostile and unhelpful and is alienating a lot of guys, I think, or contributing to it along with the economic changes. Um, and what should be done is to figure out ways where these guys can invest in themselves 
So they have opportunities to make themselves useful to other people, which will give them status and respect and so forth in, in income. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, first of all, it's important to see, you know, society as a whole, if you're suppressing half of society and not letting people reach their potential, we all suffer and will lose against nations that are, you know, not teaching their young men that their masculinity is toxic. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a threat that um, perhaps Americans uh, have an easy time forgetting. Um, so that's definitely something to keep in mind. And also this idea that, you know, masculinity has its positive manifestations and it's more negative, violent manifestations for sure. But so does femininity. You know, as you said, the mean girl effect is quite real <laughs> and uh, and shouldn't be disregarded. And I think it's really important to understand the type of antisocial behavior that females uh, get into, which is, you know, more of the gossip, the, the social reputation destruction and so on, right. which we're seeing more and more of these days, too. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there's definitely toxic femininity um, in all of that, you know, the, the gossiping, undermining the, the women really have um, a bias to develop a um, network, a social support network. And to it can be with a boyfriend or husband or it can be with friends or family or whatever. But having this social support network in place is really important to them. It's important for their social functioning and their mental health. And relational aggression, say in high school or middle school or whatever, is designed to undermine that social support network and reputation to make them not seem like they would be good as a best friend or a girlfriend or whatever. It's really, really um, much more harmful than, than people uh, realize. And now we have social media and social media is the perfect venue for relational aggression. You can't, guys engage in relational aggression too. They call each other names and all of that, but it doesn't have the same effect that it has on, on girls and women. And so it's kind of flourishing now because you have the, the, the perfect way to express it. And it's low risk, you know, doing it in high school, at lunch, in the, in the, you know, lunchroom or whatever, there's a risk of getting caught and there being confrontation and all of that. Social media, it's like the risk is down. And so the um, guardrails are off and it, I, I would, I don't do social media, but I would expect that it's pretty common. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, understanding these things is so important because obviously, you know, women do have their strengths in building one-on-one -on -one very intimate relationships, but this danger of the relational aggression is very real and yeah. it's not being addressed properly. Right. And, you know, uh, we talked about this offline. I recently saw the movie Barbie. I had to, had to know what was going on there. The, their marketing team, uh -huh. you know, did an amazing job. Everywhere uh -huh. you go, you see, uh, you see Margot Robbie. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, one of the things that I didn't jive with was they painted women as constantly being each other's cheerleaders. You know, you're so great. You're so amazing. You're so pretty. Oh, you, you are the best. 
I have not experienced that in my lifetime. You know, this uh, this sisterhood, all accepting, wonderful. Um, so I, I think just bringing a little reality uh, to the picture, because I do think women want to present as nice. We don't like sure. when people think that we're mean. It's a, you know, that's that's not part of the game we play. Uh, but I right. think a lot of what we're seeing is a lot of virtue signaling of, no, I'm nice yeah. and accepting and uh, super liberal. And yeah, um, yeah, you, yeah. It, yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah. One more reason not to watch Barbie for me anyway. But anyway, <laughs> you're right. Um, I know, of course, of course. I, uh, I do. I'm, I'm interested in uh, the cultural narrative. Sure. Uh, you yeah, know, so I, uh, I sat through it. <laughs> I'm sure it's a fine movie, but. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so women, when they meet each other, they smile more, more contact, more, um, enabling supportive speech and so forth. So they are, um, uh, making a safe space, trying to basically say, I'm not a threat to you. And there's no reason for hostility, um, to be there. And but there, there's actually been studies of this as the relationships go on, the conflicts of interest begin to emerge and the, you know, backbiting, gossiping, saying kind of plausibly deniable, nasty things to each other and so forth begins to kick in. It kicks in quicker with guys. They're just right up front with it, with uh, the girls and women. They they, you know, it, it works itself out. Yeah. Right. I mean, what do you what do you mean by plausibly deniable? So, you know, I'm really worried about uh, Amy because, you know, she's she's really drinking a lot more and hanging out with a lot of guys and stuff. I just don't right. know what we should do about it. <laughs> and so there it, it's it's a it's a relationship attack, uh, reputation attack. But. Um, veiled in compassion. Veiled in compassion. Now, there, there, there is this cheerleader supportive sort of component to women's relationships, but it, it tends to be more with their best friend and a few friends where they really are supporting one another. Right. Plus, the rest of it is just show. It's just, um, I'm not a threat. Let's not get into fights. Let's not argue and so forth. It's just, it, you know, it's all, it's all bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, I always gravitated towards uh, hanging out with the boys more growing up just because they're so much more direct. You don't have to guess, you right. know, they either like you or they don't, but uh, everything's kind of straightforward. Uh, so so there's obviously uh, pros and cons to each. Right. Uh, I do want to ask you also about your recent book about our men and women's differential vulnerability to environmental stressors. Mm -hmm. And I do think that this is, you know, fascinating and has really large scale implications for understanding how different environmental stressors and toxins and so on can really affect uh, mm -hmm. our masculinization and our feminization. So can you give us the highlights of what you found there? Sure. Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm interested in sex differences. And of course, I take an evolutionary perspective and I you know, understand hormones have influences and all, the, all that. But I think what most people don't understand is that an evolutionary perspective has a built-in environmental developmental component to it. And so um, 
the bottom line is, is, is if evolution produces a sex difference in one area, so males are t- taller than, than females and men are taller than women because of male-male competition and fighting and all of that sort of thing. Um, it means that it takes more resources, more calories, nutrients, and so forth to build a bigger male than a bigger female. Okay. And that's an environmental component to it. If the environment is poor, nutrition is poor, there's a lot of illnesses in the population and so forth, it's going to affect men's growth, adolescent boys in particular, and and young boys in particular growth more than women. And so in those contexts, the sex difference in height becomes smaller because boys and men for this trait are more vulnerable to disruptions in, you know, health, uh, nutrition, and so forth. In super good environments, like, like we, we have in a lot of developed countries, the sex differences actually get bigger. Um, we see similar sorts of things with areas where women are better at. So some areas of um, personal memories, some verbal skills or so forth. As the environment gets better, as living conditions get better, the women's advantage in those areas becomes larger. Um, If there is exposure to um, prenatal exposure to toxins, for example, it is more likely to hit or early exposure, you know, in the first few years of life, um, it's hitting women's uh, verbal language abilities more strongly than men's because th- those areas are probably more complex in women, maybe developing more quickly in women, which means you need more resources and more stuff during that time period when this is developing. And if you do something there, you expose them to toxins or their poor nutrition or whatever, those systems that are requiring the most to develop naturally are the biggest hit in, in there. We're seeing, um, sex specific deficits, um, and age specific deficits. Uh, we've, we've demonstrated this with, with various species of mice as well. You can get sex and species and trait specific deficits by taking an evolutionary approach to seeing, you know, what, who's better at what. So if you're better at something, you know, on average for males and females, whatever that something is, is the most vulnerable thing, which is kind of the opposite of way of how people think about it. So yeah, men are better at A, B, and C, and women are better at, you know, X, Y, and Z. But if the bottom falls out in terms of health, uh, nutrition, social stressors, or whatever, these advantages are the first that are hit. Why is that? Yeah, um, good question. I, I, I think the the reason for it, you can think of it at different levels. Um, <clears throat> so for guys, the argument for, for males, the argument is that, say, the peacock's tail, that is right. a sexually selected trait that signals um, male health. So it's a good indicator, you know, the the size of it, the color, the patterns, and it makes noises when they they jump around and so forth. Um, all all of that is is a good indication of male health. 
which is what females want because they want to get get um, hooked up with healthy males because that's going to give them healthier offspring. So females have evolved to pick up on that. So what then uh, stops unhealthy males from cheating and putting all of their resources, their immune system and so forth into these tails and tricking the females? Um, and the argument is that these traits that females like or that males <clears throat> use to compete with have to be honest signals that they're only going to evolve and be useful <clears throat> if they're costly. And they have to right. be and have extra resources right. in order to develop them. Right. And they have to be costly to the extent that unhealthy males or whatever <clears throat> can't develop them and fake out other males or females. And so they're bigger and exaggerated because that adds costs to it. And then underlying that, I, I think, is um, uh, something like uh, mitochondrial cellular energy production and so forth. You build a bigger thing. It takes more resources. You reduce the number of available resources. The thing that needs most resources is going to suffer the most. Right, right. I saw your paper on uh, like mitochondria being the linchpin of, uh, of G, of, the, of intelligence. Can you kind of explain your thinking behind that for whoever isn't familiar with what mitochondria are? Sure. So um, G is, um, uh, some, some people call it general intelligence. It, it's whatever is the common factor underlying performance on variety of cognitive academic tests and so forth. And you can un understand, understand it at various levels. So at the top level, people that are high on G, you know, do well on tests, um, probably have very good top-down control of attention. So they're able to focus their attention on something for a long period of time, think about what's being said and kind of conceptualize that. If you don't have good top-down attention, you're reading something, but then your mind wanders off somewhere else and you get back to it and so forth. So it's, you, you don't pick up as much. So, so that's at one level. Uh, <clears throat> there are brain systems that are involved in top-down attention, a couple of those, and those are correlated with performance on these measures. There are cellular things like synaptic connections and how quickly they're modified and so forth. But my argument is that underneath it all is how much energy your cells can produce. And most of that energy is produced by um, mitochondria. And the one of the things, it, there's a, a variety of reasons to think. Now, this doesn't mean it's just all mitochondria. It means that mitochondrial production, energy production is a kind of a limiting factor. So if you have poor nutrition, poor health, poor conditions, you're not going to be able to produce as much energy, which means your brain is not going to develop to its full potential. As you get older, um, mitochondrial production begins to wane off. You know, like a lot of things, it doesn't work as much. And that would, and, and that would be true, uh, especially in high energy systems like the brain, um, the heart, so forth. And so these aren't working as well as they once did. When, when, when you were younger. So we'd expect them to decline together. 
Um, and I mentioned that because one of the interesting things about G is that people who are good at all this test taking, cognitive sorts of things tend to live longer. And wow. when they go into cognitive decline in old age, like, like everybody does, um, we see corresponding physical declines. So it's not like, you know, cognitively you're at one level and the heart is starting to decline at another level. They're all linked together. So health and cognition in aging are linked together. And there's no kind of mental attentional control and problem solving and so forth. Doesn't really explain that link. Um, so there has to be kind of some more fundamental basic mechanism that is declining in all physical systems. And, you know, an old theory. That is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, an old theory on, on that is, 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 is that, that it's changes in mitochondrial energy production. And, and I just said, well, we could easily link that into um, cognitive related declines in G and in other things. I think this highlights such an important point about how our physical health and our, you know, cognitive abilities and our mental health, they're so linked. And, you know, I just recently uh, read this paper about how THC, you know, the active component in cannabis affects mm -hmm. mitochondria negatively. Uh, so just anyone who's listening, you know, if you're vaping too much or, you know, right. smoking too much weed, these things really do have an effect overall, both on our intelligence and our cognitive abilities, our <laughs> physical abilities. And going back to the sex differences and the vulnerability, mm -hmm. uh, the, the different vulnerability that we have to stressors, can I ask you to speculate for a moment, you know, and in terms of the trends that we're seeing, you know, men are uh, becoming more feminized in all sorts of ways. And we see testosterone levels dropping. How, how do you explain this in terms of the environmental toxins that we have around us? Because America is a rich society on the one hand, mm -hmm. but we have the standard American diet and, you know, we're exposed to so uh, much toxins. So how, how do you explain these things? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. Yeah. There's probably a number of things going on. Environmental toxins might be, might be one of them. Um, just the testosterone levels will, will vary also with just physical activity. And so okay. sitting around yeah. playing computer games all the time, eating a poor diet, is not going to produce a lot of testosterone. You need to actually be physically active um, to to maintain uh, those levels. Um, weight gain is is a real problem, um, right? For a number of reasons. One, going to mitochondria. Um, you know, guys and, and girls in in middle age who have kind of excess belly fat that leads to a number of changes, you know, pre-diabetes and other types of changes that ultimately um, undermines mitochondrial functioning and seems to speed up cognitive decline. And so we're, we're seeing, um, you know, there at one point cross-generationally, we had seen gains where older folks were maintaining their cognitive abilities for longer periods of time. 
sometimes substantially longer than previous generations. And now that's beginning to decline. And I think that's related in part to the, the weight issues and the lack of exercise um, issues. Also, fat is an endocrine um, uh, system or, or uh, right, right. tissue in and of itself, and it produces estrogens. And so being inactive and overweight, you're going to get a drop in testosterone and an increase in um circulating estrogens. So I, I think a lot of it can, if we go back, you know, just to <clears throat> more um, physically demanding, putting more physical demands on ourselves and eating better. I, I, I bet at least some of it would, would be restored. A hundred percent. I, you know, I feel this about myself in times when I'm eating better and I'm exercising in times when you know, I haven't hit the gym, you really feel it. And I think it's, for me, at least it's comforting to know that I have a lot of control over right. these things. Right. The fact that we can control how we eat and how we exercise and really, you know, maintain our vitality throughout life. These sex hormones are, you know, part of our life force. Mm -hmm. And if, if we don't have them in balance, mm -hmm. then, you know, we we're, we're only half alive. And I think it's a shame to go throughout life that way. So I, I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just kind of to wrap up, you know, you have focused on uh, educational uh, evolutionary psychology. And I, I would love to hear, you know, your thoughts on how you envision the future of education if it were to undergo an upgrade so it can really serve boys and girls to reach their fullest potential? Right. Yeah. Great, great question. Yeah. So a long time ago with my first book and an article in the mid nineties, um, I argued that there's a difference between universally evolved abilities like spatial abilities and language and um, historically more recent and culturally contingent abilities like reading mathematics and so forth. I mean, there's no algebra in traditional contexts, there's no reading in traditional contexts. You don't need those types of things. So the, the the argument is that the brain really hasn't evolved to um, easily acquire these skills. And so it requires some direct instruction, organization of instruction, rigorous instruction, and so forth, um, which was the exact opposite of what, what educators were arguing at the time and, and what a lot of them still argue where, well, you know, kids pick up language pretty easily. Well, very easily. They just have to be exposed to it and engage in, you know, discussions and that sort of thing. The brain is pre-wired to make sure that system um, develops normally, as long as you have typical species, typical social interactions and everything works out just fine. And then the assumption is, well, reading should be the same way. It's just a continuation of language. So if you just expose children to books, um, let them see other kids reading books and so forth, and that they'll just pick up reading skills just like they picked up language skills. And it led to whole language and it turned out to be a disaster for millions of kids in terms of their long-term reading abilities. 
similar thing has happened with mathematics in other areas. It's like, well, and, and plus, you know, a lot of teachers want to go along and make the kids happy and do what they like to do. But what they like to do is hang out with their friends and play and so forth. And you're not going to learn to read by doing that. You're not going to learn mathematics by doing that. You're not going to learn history by doing that. It's just not going to work. So there's a mismatch between the activities kids prefer to do and the activities they need to do to become um, educated enough to be self-supporting as adults in a modern society. They don't like it typically, <laughs> but it's in their best long-term interest to do that. So, so that's kind of where I'm at. I'm saying that, well, modern education has missed the boat, you know, fatal conceptual flaw that there is this continuing between natural abilities and um, uh, academic abilities. And so things like uh, child-centered learning, whole language learning, and so forth shouldn't work, uh, and they don't work. And that's why you need an organized curriculum with well-trained teachers and homework and direct instruction a lot of times, a lot of things that people just don't like. But you know, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, you know, you have to kind of overcome a lot of hurdles mm -hmm. uh, when you're a kid in terms of your reading ability until you can actually enjoy reading a book for pleasure. Right. And, uh, and, you know, same with, with math. And, you know, at some point it does become uh, useful, uh, you know, when you're working with Excel sheets. But, you know, when you're doing calculus at school and uh, you don't understand why you need to be doing it, right. it develops your thinking in ways that nothing else could. Right. And I think I think also we're moving away, unfortunately, from, you know, passing on the history of ideas, mm -hmm. you know, this historical kind of understanding that we were sitting uh, on the shoulders of giants. You know, there's mm -hmm. an evolution to our philosophy, to our Western world. And I think that we we throw that out uh, at our peril. And uh, child-centered anything, I think, is a, <laughs> can, can be very problematic. Yep, yep. Kids, kids, kids can be morons, and, and you, you can't let them just uh, <laughs> go off on their own. They, they need some direction by parents uh, and teachers. But, but um, about making it better for boys and girls. Yeah. This, this approach also means that, you know, girls' advantages in language um, translates into advantages in reading. Uh, mm -hmm. so they pick up uh, things like word decoding, uh, picking up the sounds associated with letters like ba, pa, and so forth. They, they learn those more readily than guys do. And so guys young guys, I'm talking about four or five-year-olds, right, right. Um, need more direct instruction in that. They need more guidance. They need more to focus on these and to get the sounds. It's really important to learn those um, letter sound correspondence and word decoding and the early orthography and stuff. And so guys need, need more of that than girls do on average. <clears throat> Guys have advantage in visual-spatial abilities, which gives them advantages in certain academic domains, um, physics, 
engineering for the mechanical reasoning sorts of things. Some areas of math, um, it's easier to understand problems and if you can develop a visual spatial representation of the, of those problems. Um, and guys seem to kind of go to the visual spatial representations more frequently by default than girls do. Girls are probably more likely to solve it procedurally or language talk through, talk through it and so forth. But, but girls can be taught to set up problems using visual spatial strategies. Um, but if you deny that there are any differences or say that, well, everybody's same, it's all, you know, social conditioning or whatever, there's no explicit reason to say, well, okay, you know, let's work through a visual spatial strategy to solve this type of problem and think that, well, maybe, maybe girls might need a little more time on that than guys. Right. And this is, it's hilarious how this goes against, you know, what the gender activists want. They want, you know, girls to succeed in uh, STEM fields, but they are denying the fact that girls might need, on average, might need a little extra help in these topics. I do want to ask you, you know, in terms of boys needing a little extra help with reading, and, you know, to focus on these things. Mm-hmm. How how do you envision the perfect school day that also takes into account that boys need to, uh, you know, be physical and right. be physically active? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so boys have, especially young boys, have a hard time sitting still. I mean, they're not designed by evolution to sit around and chat. Um, they're they're designed to move, to engage in rough and tumble play, to organize groups together, run and so forth. So I I think building in recesses and physical activity, kind of unsupervised or supervised, but non-structured, let them do do their own thing, uh, will, will be pretty important for boys. It kind of helps them. It'll help them focus a little better after they get back from playing outside. So, so right, more, right. more, more recesses, especially early on. Right, right. And I think also the fact that we're seeing less and less male teachers, you know, th- the fact that this profession has kind of uh, been taken over uh, by women and gender activists. So understandably, uh, less men uh, see a career path there. Right. But I think, you know, we can't get around the fact that boys are going to be a little bit more obedient uh, when a man tells them to do something than when a woman does. You know, I uh, recently uh, babysat my my cousins. They're seven and 10 years old, but the 10-year-old really well-behaved. The seven-year-old is a little vandalist mm-hmm. and I could not get him to calm down. And I just told him, when my husband come ho- comes home, he's going to be very upset with you. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the whole the whole energy shifted he's like i don't want to upset him so you know i think i think we we do need to be aware of sex differences and use them to our advantage and help you know kids grow up in a way that at the end of the day you know the goal is to help everyone reach their full potential uh, and not to suppress any any of their abilities and any of their you know true, uh, true nature. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. In, in, in traditional contexts, um, men and women are pretty segregated in terms of women do this and men do this <clears throat> in guys. 
that the young guys really orient themselves to the older guys and the adult men and imitate them and want to get integrated into that male group and culture and find a spot for themselves in there. So they're naturally oriented toward um, more, more dominant, older, more capable guys, because that's, that's what, what you see in traditional contexts. And in those contexts, they have to be, because that's the social network they're going to eventually become part of. Right, right. I think that's also an uh, important point to note. David, we've gone over time. This has been so interesting. Uh, so I'm going to let you go. All right. uh, where can people find you? Um, yeah, well, usually I'm at home. My wife is <laughs> in the basement. That's how I get so much done. Yeah. If, uh, um, if people on the internet want to find your work, where, where can they go to, to read more? Yeah, yeah. You you can um, email me if you have a particular question at uh, at, the, at at the University of Missouri. Uh, I have um, lists of uh, articles, books, and stuff on my uh, University of Missouri website. And if you want any of those individually, you just email me, and I'll I'll send you copies. Wonderful. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it.